You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. While luxury brands are looking to have more agency over the way their products live in the resale market and the idea of contemporary vintage is becoming a new and more widely explored offering, we wanted to sit down with Byroness co-founder Jill Linton and get her expert opinion on this new approach to an already existing idea. With a company tagline of just because it's old doesn't mean it's good, we're reminded of the value of good curation. Via their platform, you're able to shop from the private collection of Carlos Cezanne, explore offerings from their partnership with the Vivian Westwood Foundation, and soon you'll be able to shop the first ever future vintage concession in collaboration with none other than Gucci. This is Jill Linton, and we're talking about what's contemporary now. Jill Linton, founder of Byronesque, a company that's been open for 10 years already. Clearly, you have a story that started uh, prior to that particular project. So let's tap into that somewhat and discuss being London born and raised to two Scottish parents. What was that all about? <laughs> the Scottish bit's very important to the Scots anyway. Yeah, one thing I should say is that I'm the co-founder of Byronesque. I'm not entirely to blame. We'll talk about that a bit later. But yeah, I was actually born in London, even though my family was Scottish which makes me what they call in England a Sassanach, which is the Scottish term for being English within the Scottish family. So I was always the odd one out, even from a very early age. I was always the different one, the black sheep of the family. And in a good way, that stuck. Fast forward to you know getting past university and I got my dream job working with the Saatchi brothers when they started MNC Saatchi. I always wanted to be in advertising. I couldn't even tell you where it came from. But from a young teenage time, I, I just really, really wanted to work for Morrison Charles Saatchi and it happened. So I spent my formative years being taught about the sort of traditional world of branding and advertising and marketing and creating content when we used to use film and things like that. You used to have to actually make things with your hands. And I was just incredibly lucky. There's no two ways about it. Obviously, at a certain point, you made the decision to jump out of what you were doing and begin a company like Byronesque. So what was the kind of initial genesis of that idea and the reasons behind wanting to do it? Something very organic happened and I couldn't have planned it. But because I had a background in traditional marketing and advertising, but I also had worked in music and fashion, I knew about the realities and the practicalities of the business. Like I knew what designers went through. I knew the non-glamorous bits. I knew what it took. And so I found that at the time, fashion was starting to evolve and change. Brands realized that they couldn't just hire a famous model and buy a page in Vogue and job done. Technology was changing. They were starting to talk about themselves as brands. And it sounds archaic now, but they didn't used to. It was always about the designer and what it looked like and Kate Moss. I'm exaggerating to make the point. And my friend just said, what would you do? If you weren't doing this, what would you do? And without realizing it, I described Byronesque. That actually is a beautiful segue because, again, it's a company that's well known within the industry. A lot of designers, consultants, editors, stylists are collaborating with you on anything from inspiration pieces to pulling for different shoots and whatnot. Whereas the kind of public at large outside of the immediate consumer that you already have isn't necessarily familiar. So how would you describe what Byronesque is. Vintage is obviously a huge component, but it feels like a well-rounded concept that I'd love for you to touch upon a little bit. I always find it easy when I paraphrase our manifesto because people get it. And I think it helps them also understand how we're different from, say, traditional resale sites. So we always say we start at punk. So if you're looking for a quilted Chanel handbag or an Hermes handbag or something very traditional and 
nice and pretty and perfect. That's not us. We started talking about the idea of this thing called contemporary vintage because I personally couldn't find early calm, Yoji, Marjela. You couldn't find it because even only 10 years ago, vintage was still very thrifty. It was, mm-hmm. you know, ripped up denim, cowboy boots, fucked up t shirts, 70s smelly fur jackets, all very expensive red carpet stuff. It was pretty polarizing. And I wanted oversized Margela jeans and you couldn't find it. But the sort of business side of it, which I'll do really quickly because it is the boring bit, was okay. that fashion started to grow, production grew, brands started to open up stores around the world. So it used to be that if you wanted Saint you'd have to go to France because that was its home. And if you wanted Com, Japan was the place to go. But as the industry just became global, someone that was shopping in Paris could be buying Com. So suddenly all of this amazing contemporary vintage wasn't in its home destination. It was all over the world. So, you know, unless you're going to scour eBay or call every vintage shop or knock down people's doors and ask them if they've got this stuff in their closets, it was impossible to find. So that's why we created a network of private collectors and sellers around the world so that we could bring those pieces to one destination and make it really easy. I don't like shopping. I hate shopping. I don't believe that the thrill of the hunt is the fun of it all. I find it, particularly in the vintage world, and it's still pretty much the same. It's still quite a sort of smelly rummage. And I felt at the time, with Justin, his the other half of Byronesque, was it should be easy. Why shouldn't this feel like going to shopping Dove Street Market or a great boutique? Why does it have to be so hard? So that was essentially why Baroness got created. We're here talking about what's contemporary now. It hasn't changed a huge amount. So it was really all about how do we make this process more contemporary for contemporary vintage that starts at punk for people who don't want to be figured out, for people who don't need the vintage logo bag or even the new logo bag. Vintage in and of itself is obviously sustainable in comparison to seasonal purchasing of whatever new garment has come down a runway or even within the fast fashion space. But you made a very interesting comment recently about resale being the new fast fashion. And that's a pretty charged statement to make. Do you care to explain what you meant by that? It's quite simple. I mean, it's maths. Yes, of course, it's an opinion that we have. And we start at punk. Of course, we've got opinions. But if you just look at the numbers, at how resale, which is a very broad, let's just put that out there. It's a whole other podcast. Resale is a very broad industry. But let's just call it things that are sold twice or more. Um, It's growing more than the luxury sector and it's growing more than fast fashion. But that doesn't mean that luxury and fast fashion is slowing down. So actually all we're doing is increasing volume and perpetuating the idea of buying and selling. And fast also speaks to the speed with which people buy things without hesitating because they know, well, I'll just sell it again. So what we're trying to do is to encourage people to be a little bit more considered, slower, and keep things for a long time. Because then we can start to slow the pace of this machine down. Because there's there's too many clothes. I saw a number the other day, and I can't remember the exact number, but there were enough clothes might even be in America, let alone in the world, to dress something like the next 10 generations of people. 
without making any new, might have even been 30 generations. It was a shocking number. All of the statistics are pretty shocking. So the fast fashion thing is about, we've just created this new landfill in the cloud because people are just buying and selling. You know, and the other thing that hopefully does differentiate us is that just because it's old doesn't mean it's good. But this landfill in the cloud doesn't care if it's good because it's just buying and selling. It's a flip culture. So we're trying to control this culture of just flipping things without caring about, you know, we also say that we'd like to think that the clothes that we sell and stories that we tell have more meaning than the mainstream. And unfortunately, the resale market isn't distinguishing between the really creative moments in culture that these clothes still represent and still create inspiration for. And we think it's important that that still exists and lives in the world because we're fighting a battle against all of the very mainstream fast fashion things. It's a struggle for attention, but also a struggle for being seen as well as a share of wallet. You know, it's the broken window effect. The more shit you see, the more shit there'll be. The more beauty there is, the more beauty you're going to want. And an evolution of that sort of curatorial role has been the recent transition from being a luxury vintage retailer to a digital vintage department store where you guys are actually organizing e-concessions for luxury brands. Can you explain a little bit about how that's going to work? Yeah. One of the reasons was about authentication. There are certain brands that are faked more than others, seditionaries being one. And so we partner with Joe Corey and the archive team at the Vivian Foundation, which is the foundation that Vivian created. Essentially, it's her legacy. Any punk seditionaries, more complex pieces of Westwood that come through from Vivian and Malcolm's era gets authenticated by the foundation. Proceeds go to support the causes that Vivian cared very strongly about, which is important to us because also we started punk. You know, we're very influenced by Vivian and Malcolm and what they created. So that was a big thing for us. And The concession model was really to create environments where brands can control their image as much as anything and also take part in the secondary market without jeopardizing or pissing off the people in the current businesses because not every brand's DNA fits with their current work. There's not a lot of brands that it makes sense You wouldn't go into a certain designer brand today and if you saw its predecessor's work, to most people that would be really confusing. So we provide a specialist environment where we stock on their behalf their vintage archives. They make money from it, but they also get to work with us as brand experts because we don't just understand the resale and the vintage market, we're also brand experts. Are you guys the first company or platform to partner up with luxury brands and give them more agency over their sort of resale market and their own product? No. Brands have done and still do things with other resale sites, but they tend to be mixed in with the bigger offer. They tend to be pop-ups. There doesn't tend to be any narrative or storytelling around collections. What we offer is something more permanent, tells the story. We have future vintage so we can connect their past to the future without them clashing. And they get to work with us on the edit and the story that we tell. So they get to take a bit of control about the taste levels with which their previous collections are being seen in the world, which they currently have no control over that because you just go on Instagram and 
John or Tracy from Buttfuck Nowhere might be wearing it in a really bad way or showing it in a really bad way. And the brands have got no control over that. You guys are actually doing something similar with Gucci is what you've done with Vivian Westwood now. Yes. The only difference is that for them, that is specifically around future vintage. The idea of helping people choose investment pieces that they can keep for a long time. Again, everything we try and do is around the idea of longevity as well. Either because you're going to wear it for a long time or you'll want to keep it because it'll become emotionally or financially valuable in the future. So we're helping people hopefully shop better from, because we don't expect people to stop shopping. Of course, they're not going to. But Future Vintage is the idea of perhaps helping them to buy better. Because if we, the world, people, if we don't make better choices of the clothes that we're buying today, what is vintage going to look like in 20 years' time? Imagine that. Oh, the horror, possibly. It's also interesting because at the end of the day, regardless of all of these very attractive points, you are in fact a business, right? And so the notion of sales is what drives your success if we're looking at it through the lens of economics. And yet here you are with this messaging around things like future vintage and encouraging buyers to buy less and keep things longer. So how do you juggle that equation given that obviously sales sustain your business but that messaging slows sales down, in theory. It's all relative, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like we're Primark or Century 21. We're trying to control those kinds of volumes. Mm-hmm. So we are, by our very nature, utterly sustainable because we're telling people to buy old clothes and keep them and look after them. And we're asking them to reduce the amount of new clothes that they buy and keep those for longer. It's not just, here's some nice clothes that you can buy and here's some nice stories behind them. The bigger picture is trying to make a bit of a cultural shift in people's shopping behavior, I which, love is that. A lot, which is a lot for a small company, mm-hmm. small, medium-sized company to take on. But that's what we're preaching. And, you know, we practice what we preach. I personally don't have a lot of clothes. I'm not a major collector, but I understand it. I mean, you must, clearly, given the nature of business you're in. You guys also have been known for reissuing different vintage finds. Can we talk a little bit about what that entails and how that works? Yeah. The first reissue was with Helmut Lang, which was quite controversial because there wasn't a lead designer at the time. And we knew the heartbeat of Helmut's fans. And we said, if we're going to do this, it has got to be an homage to Helmut. It has to be very respectful and you have to do it really well. Don't produce it in China, for example. Be very considered around it, but make it feel alive. It also can't feel like a lifetime achievement award that's writing somebody off. There's often quite a balance when you do things like that. But you can't please all the people all the time, of course. And the diehard fans, a lot of them got pissed off about it. But you guys have another one coming out now, is so, it not? Yes. So, yes. So we started with Lang and it went well. I mean, it sold out. So, the, you know, there are still fans that wanted the pieces that you couldn't get anymore, all that were really hard to find. Then we did Vex Generation, which people should look into Vex Generation. They were way ahead of their time. I think everybody that we worked with was always ahead of their time. Vexed on a sort of very social political, social political fashion. It was genius when you really look into what they created and why they created it. Helmut was obviously ahead of his time, changed the way people dressed in New York. Everyone knows that. Then we did Claude Montana and we worked with Gareth Pugh, the creative director on that reissue. 
because the timing was just right. You know, you could look at all of the runway shows in 2019 and it was like, that's Claude's shoulder. That's the Claude shape. It was so obvious. And you can ask so many designers, the love for Claude isn't anything that people aren't open about. So we, that was a really great project and that collection sold out really well. When we talk about reissues, we always sort of say bringing back the overlooked and longed for all designers that had pioneered something. And now, speaking of what's contemporary now and being ahead of their time, 3S4, when there were S4, created this iconic shape that is a circle bag. And it wasn't just a bag, it was a joke with them that in the Lower East Side in the early 2000s, if you were cycling around or walking around with a circle bag, it was the equivalent of a sort of sonic handshake. You knew that you were in with a certain group of people and it was the very the most creative people probably at the time in New York were in that kind of world, if you like. Mm-hmm. And just a great piece of design and they've been ahead of fashion in terms of technology and how they produce things so much, you know. But even at a very basic level of using upcycled fabrics long time ago. So we've partnered with Machine A in London and Shanghai, who are our long-term sort of partners in crime. We are known as Machine B. And they are going to be selling and offering the reissue first off exclusively. But they have made Byron-esque a very small selection of upcycled circle bags from material that they had from the early 2000s. We're getting the very, very sustainable version. And you guys are also starting to work with blockchain technology, right? Yes. So we work with a company called Spin.Fashion, mm-hmm. who are amazing. And I say they're amazing because they've worked so closely with us to understand how to actually treat authenticating a garment that might be very special and very rare. It's quite common now for brands to sew in a label on a new piece of clothing. You can't necessarily do that on a rare piece of seditionary punk or something. You can't just like sew in a big chunky thing. So, and also a paper certificate of appraisal or authenticity can be copied. I mean, once they're out in circulation. So the fact that these things can get chipped and you use your phone with a password that then has the entire story and authenticity and therefore value of an item that you've bought speaks to our idea about longevity as well. This thing is now set in stone. So when you either keep it, pass it on or sell it, the chip goes with it. The narrative and the story of it goes along with it. So again, it's about keeping clothing as investment pieces, either because you're investing in it emotionally or financially. That brings up the power of narrative, right? And the importance of story. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the role of things like education or understanding fashion history as far as how that informs the resale market and what it is that people value. Well, we get a lot of people come to us with their collections because they don't want them anymore. And there's many reasons why people decide to get rid of their collections. But they come to us usually because they don't just want to stick it on a resale site or they want their things to go to a good home. And one particular collector has a very important archive that has a lot of fashion history to it. And so we partner with Parsons in Paris quite a bit. They have fashion history and critical theory courses where we're able to teach students the sort of art of archiving, the art of sales strategy when it comes to where do particular pieces of clothing belong in the world. Some pieces should be in a museum, but some should be loved and worn and live. And some pieces have got an incredible fashion history 
we talk about obscure connections a lot, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what we like to bring in our editorials. We always think if you can Google it and it's already out there, you don't need another website or another person to tell you the same story. But what's more interesting is if you can get behind the scenes information or people's perspectives and opinions. Also, you can connect different cultures because you just have a broader understanding of brands and culture. And we can have this conversation without asking the last and obvious question, which is, what is contemporary now? Very difficult question, but I did think long and hard about it, and I was quite shocked that it didn't come to me immediately. But I think it's talent, because what we try and do is give credit where it's due in fashion history. And we are going into an era where you can do a lot without any talent. And I think it would be nice if the cream rose to the top again. And I think that real creativity comes from true talent. And hopefully we're going to see a resurgence of that. Thank you again for taking the time today. It was a very fascinating conversation and a very different take on resale, sustainability and all the other fun bits and bobs we touched upon. So thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Christopher. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes. And for more content, follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com. 